So take your Bibles this morning. We're going to turn open to the Gospel of Matthew. And this morning, Matthew chapter 19. We're looking at Matthew 19, verses 1 through 15 this morning. Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 15. And let's pray before we read God's Word together. We need always His Spirit to attend, so let's pray. Father, we need to hear from You. So we pray that You would speak to us by Your Word this morning. For us to hear from You, You have to open our hearts and You have to open our ears. So would you do so and reveal to us that which is true of you and true of what you desire from us. In Christ's name, amen. Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 15. This is the holy and errant word of God. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive the same, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been, bo- been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he led, laid his hands on them and went away. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. It has become a kind of truism that these are not easy times in which to live. I think we all kind of feel this kind of uh, disruption. There is this kind of disorientation that is happening, an unsettledness. Our culture has been changing, it is changing at light speed. And we are 
required to have an answer and an opinion about everything that is happening. I don't know the answers to everything. I don't know the answers to every question that is being asked or everything that is occurring. But what I do know is that I want to value what Christ values. I want to value what Christ values. As I think about all the things that are happening in our culture, a good paradigm to think through all of these things is we want to value what Christ values in the midst of this. It's a good rubric to think through. This is not an easy text because of all the questions that arise. I can't deal with all of the questions that are in this text. It is a hard text because we've all been affected in some way by the things that are spoken about in this text. But what I want to do, therefore, is I want to kind of zoom out as we look at this text, and I want to look at what Christ values And what he says he values in this text, and I want to look at seven of those points this morning, now going into the afternoon. Seven quick points of what Christ values, and so therefore we are to seek to value. The Pharisees, they come to Jesus with ill intentions. Matthew is very clear about that. He says that they come to test him. A marriage and divorce is not any more contentious today than it was back in Jesus' time when we discuss marriage and divorce. It affects every single person that is in this room. We, We all have different thoughts that go through our head, and we all have different feelings in response when we hear marriage, divorce, remarriage. For some, it's anger and bitterness and disappointment and uh, envy, and for others, it is Maybe it's joy, maybe it's satisfaction, maybe it's happiness, maybe it's grieving, maybe it's a sense of loss. It's the same in Jesus' time as this question is asked of him. The Pharisees know that there, this crowd around him, there are going to be different thoughts and there's going to be different feelings. And so no matter how he answers this question, he's going to offend at least some of the people. It's a trap. But it's even more than that. They also know that when John the Baptist spoke on this issue, divorce and remarriage and adultery, that it literally caused him to lose his head because he had spoken against Herodias and Herodian. And so here with Jesus, they are tempting him to speak out in a way that would get him in trouble with Herod and Herodias. The question... It's about divorce. And what does Jesus say about divorce? When asked his opinion, Jesus immediately runs to the Old Testament Scriptures, the opening passages of the Bible. He says, have you not read? That's what he says. So our first point, what God has said, let not man doubt. The Word of God. What God has said, let not man doubt. The Word of God. We want to value what Jesus values. Jesus believes that the Scriptures are authoritative. He not only believes that they are authoritative, He believes that they are true. But He doesn't just believe that they are true. 
He believes that these past things written, that they actually have a present relevancy. And so he goes back. He goes back to the very beginning, and he is quoting from the Scriptures. He believes God created all things. He says He created them from the beginning. He believes the testimony of Moses that God created Adam and Eve. He's quoting from Genesis 1 and 2. If we want to value what Jesus values, then we have to value the Word. We have to believe that the Scriptures are authoritative. We have to believe that they're true. We have to believe that though written in ages past, they are relevant in the present. Jesus does. If we don't believe the Bible is authoritative and don't believe it's true and don't believe it's relevant in the present, then we don't believe as Jesus believes. Because over and again, he turns to the Scriptures when people come to him with questions. And he turns to them because he believes they're authoritative, true, and relevant. So he will speak about creation. He will speak about Adam and Eve. He will speak about Noah and the flood because he believes they're real. He will speak about Jonah being swallowed by the fish because he believes it was real. We want to value what Jesus values. And what God has said, let not man doubt the Bible. Second, what God has created, let not man confuse. Here we see binary gender. What God has created, let not man confuse. The question is about divorce. But Jesus goes back to the step before divorce. He goes back to marriage. And then he goes even to the step before marriage. He goes to gender. He says, God made them male and female, binary gender. There's a sameness in that they are both male and female, created in the image of God, that they are both endowed with the same dignity and endowed with the same worth, but there is a difference. One is male, one is female, binary gender. Our society has attempted to steal the word gender as it assaults both male and female. It has made gender into a kind of wax nose that it can manipulate to make it look like anything it wants it to look like. There's an attempt to separate gender from sex as if the two are unrelated. Sex is a biological and bodily reality. Gender is the social expression of that physical reality. And so, if someone asks me, Jason, what is your sex? My sex is male. If someone asks, Jason, what is your gender? My gender is male. You can't separate them. They go together. There's no neutral gender. There's no gender fluidity. The Bible tells us this. Jesus tells us this. Science tells us this. There's a complementarity between male and female that cannot be denied. Our ability to generate new life is tied to this. It is, in fact, anti-science to deny this. It's to our great downfall that this culture is promoting a kind of radical androgyny that blurs gender and gender roles and the benefits of each. It's a 
It's a form of radical individualism in which we are sold the bill of goods that, as one scholar noted, that human completion is a solo act. As if all human potentiality lies within his or herself as a person. It's a form of narcissism. And it leads to disillusionment and it leads to hopelessness. God's good design is that men and women complement one another. He creates all things, and after each day He creates, He says, it is good. When He creates man, He sees man and He says, it's not good that man should be alone. And then he creates woman from his side. And then in Genesis 1.27, when he is looking over creation, and now he sees man and woman complementing one another, side by side one another, he says it is very good. God has created, let not man confuse Sharon James helpfully said, the demand for a genderless body is to unravel the creation design and to go back to chaos. It's to strip out how God created things for His good and for our good. As soon as we say and we begin to press in on these things, we need to recognize that no doubt in this room and between the fellowship hall and this room, there are there are some that are suffering, that are confused about this, or will be confused and suffering because of other things that we will delve into this afternoon. People for sure are confused and suffering out there. And so we want to tackle these things with compassion. We want to talk about these things with respect as we speak about them with people. But we want to value what Jesus values and we want to speak truth. That's actually loving, to speak truth. What God has created, let not man confuse. We want to value what Jesus values. Third, what God has ordained, let not man disregard. Marriage is between one male and one female. It is one male and one female who come together, Jesus says, to become one flesh. Even as gender is not fluid, marriage is not fluid. Even as uh, you can't redefine gender, so you can't redefine marriage. Not if we're going to value what Jesus values. There is to be diversity and unity in marriage as one man and one woman then become together one flesh. And we lose beauty when we turn it into something it wasn't meant to be, whether that's because of a lack of diversity in the genders of those who come together or a lack of recognized diversity in the roles of the two genders that come together. When two individuals from opposite genders unite, recognizing their gender differences and honoring them, the two become one in every way. And there's a beauty there that can't be surpassed. 
There's a happiness there that can't be surpassed. There's a joy there that can't be surpassed. There's a fulfillment there that can't be surpassed. Diversity brings rich experiences that sameness can't. The less interchangeable people are, the more each needs the other. Men and women are different. Remember a seminary professor once saying to us in seminary class, he, he said, you know, if my wife and I never disagree, one of us is unnecessary. That's right, it, different. Two different people becoming one flesh, one male, one female. It takes one of each for marriage in which they have different roles and different responsibilities and different callings by God's created design. And we must value that if we're going to value what Jesus values. But God has ordained that not man disregard. Fourth, well, God is joined together, let not men separate. Jesus says that these two individuals, one male and one female, that they become one flesh, and this is no small thing. He now belongs to her, and she now belongs to him. They are now one flesh. So much so that Paul in Ephesians 5 will say that as a husband loves his wife, he loves his own body. They're one flesh. They're joined together. And therefore, Jesus says they are to remain one. Why? Because God has joined them together as one. I truly believe that the dissolution of marriage as an institution in our society is the greatest contributor to this society's downfall and will be to its downfall. And you remove the stone of marriage from society and an avalanche of problems cascade from it. We've seen this. We've seen this with no-fault divorce. We've seen this with shacking culture. We've seen this with a redefinition of marriage as including homosexuality. We have seen this, and we will see this eventually, I think, with polyamory and with polygamy. It's all on the horizon. As marriage goes, so goes our society. And as that is true in society, so it's true in the church, and we've seen that. It's not mere coincidence that every denomination that has embraced egalitarianism has eventually embraced homosexuality and has eventually then embraced homosexual marriage, and then every single one of them begins to hemorrhage and die. It's not a mistake. Notice what he emphasizes, Jesus places the emphasis upon the enduring principle of marriage. But the question was about divorce. That's the question they'd asked Jesus. It was about divorce, and he had taken them back to the Scriptures to assert marriage and to assert gender and to assert creation. And they asked, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus' answer is, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The Pharisees want to focus on the exception. Jesus wants us to focus upon the rule. And the rule is, marriage is for life. What God has joined together, let not man separate. 
Fifth, what God has given, when, or what God has given mercy for, let not man dismiss. What God has given mercy for, let not man dismiss. Jesus gave his answer, but the Pharisees want to go back to divorce. Okay, we got it, Jesus. What God has joined together, let not man separate, but Jesus. We've seen. Moses says that there's a certificate of divorce that's to be given to the wife if she is dismissed by her husband. So if, if Moses gave that, then surely divorce is allowable. I go back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. There's that provision that's made there. That if there is some indecency is the language, some indecency that then a husband is to give his wife a certificate of divorce as she goes away. There were two main schools of thought in Judaism at this time about what that meant and what was allowable for divorce. There was the more conservative school of Shammai that said that indecency was very limited and was just to adultery, just to the act of adultery. There was also the school of Hillel that expanded that, that some indecency to include almost anything, to where they would argue that, for instance, in their writings, that even if a wife somehow uh, cooked her husband a dinner that was spoiled, that then that was some sort of indecency that he had a right to divorce her for. Uh, in the Mishnah, which will be a later writing, they will say, well, if he finds another woman more attractive, then that is a right to divorce. Um, in Ecclesiasticus, that apocryphal book, Apocrypha, existing between the writing of the Old Testament and the New Testament, in that book, they will say, quote, if she will not do as you tell her, get rid of her. Josephus, the early Jewish historian who lived in the first century, was a Pharisee, and he was a divorcee, and he believed that a man in Judaism could divorce his wife, he said, for practically anything. The certificate was given by Moses here and given by God to, to prevent a woman in such circumstances of just kind of being cast off. It was a mercy. I think in this time and in this age, women were not valued and they weren't treated well and there were very little mercies along these lines. And so it was to safeguard her that if her husband divorced her and cast her out and then she goes off and she finds another man that she can marry that will then provide for her and protect her and be with her, that that first husband can't grab her back and say, oh, no, 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 you can't marry him. You're mine. No, if he's going to divorce her, he needs to give her a certificate of divorce so that then she is free then to remarry. It's a mercy by God to women in a time when there were very few mercies given to women. Jesus here, in his answer, he is going to side with the more conservative side of the equation, though he's going to inform and correct them as well. But he says, this was given, this certificate of divorce was given because of your hardness of heart. He's saying Moses didn't command for divorce, he allowed for divorce. There's a difference. That is, this was not God's intended purpose from the beginning, that, that there would be divorce and that a marriage would be dissolvable. As Malachi says, God hates divorce. But God allowed it through, through Moses as a mercy 
as a mercy when a grievous sin and indecency was committed. And Jesus interprets that indecency as sexual immorality. I preached this text just two years ago when we were in Matthew chapter 5. We were looking at divorce there, and so we came over here to Matthew 19. And so we looked at Matthew 19 in detail just two years ago. So I'm not going to walk through all of that in detail this morning. I'd point you to that sermon. You can go back and listen to that. I know there are tons of questions when it comes to divorce. Uh, I also am more than available. Some of you have past pains, past wrestlings. Some of you have present ones. More than available to sit and talk and pray together and think through these things together. But what I want to do this afternoon is just kind of do an overview, kind of step back a little bit and just briefly look at why Jesus allows for divorce in the case of adultery. Why that? The reason is because sex outside of marriage contorts marriage, and it contorts the marriage marriage covenant, the marriage relationship. I want you to hear me very clearly here. Hear me clearly on this first part. Sex is not a sacrament. Sex is not a sacrament. It's not a sacrament like the Lord's table and baptism. But as we see with the Lord's table and baptism, you think about the covenant that God makes with His people. The Lord's table and baptism is a physical, tangible sign of that covenant He has made with His people. So that when we undergo the waters of baptism and when we partake of the sacrament of the Lord's table, that we are having pressed to us, we're having signified to us, we're having sealed to us the promises of God, that we're one with Him, that He's one with us, that we're His, that He is ours, that we're united with Him. In a similar, similar way, sex signifies and seals that covenant relationship in a very tangible, physical way. It signifies and seals those promises that husband and wife had made to one another, seals those promises to one another, confirms to one another that I am yours and you are mine and we are one flesh. It is the tangible physical sign and seal that God has given us in our marriage covenants. Look, rings, all for them, great things, but they're additions. It's sex that He has given us within the marriage covenant to represent and signify and seal to us those promises over and over. That is why it is such a violation that you take something that is beautiful and was meant for that covenantal relationship and now you have joined yourself to someone outside that covenantal relationship. And something that was meant to press home those promises and that commitment now is being used out here outside of that relationship. And something that was very beautiful all of a sudden becomes very ugly and disgusting and horrific. And so Jesus is saying, when such a breach occurs... When there has been such a violation in the marriage relationship, 
And it seems like that breach is insurmountable. You can't get over that. Then, there are grounds for divorce. But it does not have to result in divorce, as some in the Jewish tradition taught. I walk through some different views on this text in that Matthew 5 sermon, so I'm not going to go through each today. But to be clear, I do believe what Jesus is doing here is He's speaking about God giving mercy to those who have been injured by in their marriage by their spouse to such a degree that the breach seems insurmountable. And that's important because some people in Christianity and in the church believe that there should be no grounds ever for divorce. They say, look, God, what God has joined together, let not man separate? Yes, absolutely. That is the ideal. That's the way it's supposed to be. But we can at times be more spiritual than the Scriptures themselves. He grants mercy here. What God has given mercy for, let not man dismiss. We want to value what Jesus values. I'm sure uh, that rooms of these two sizes... At least one, most likely more, than you've suffered in this way in your marriage relationship. You've been sinned against grievously. Uh, and I would say, first and foremost, as your pastor, I'm sorry. Sorry that you've had a breach in that relationship with this, which is the most intimate and important in all of life. Uh, there are a few greater pains in all of life than what you've experienced. And I want you to hear that when God looks upon you, as Jesus is saying here from the text, it is with mercy. The pain's not lost on him. It's with mercy. Now the hope is for restoration. Adultery is not the unforgivable sin. We've all been forgiven much, and so we're to forgive much. Remember the text from last week? There's a reason that Matthew 19 follows Matthew 18. Yet, Jesus is making it clear that it may not be possible. The ideal may not be reachable. And so, if your spouse committed adultery, it can be ground for divorce. You're not a worse Christian and someone else, if you find reconciliation impossible in such a case, the fault is on their side. God protects the injured. He protects the innocent. So He grants mercy. Now the Apostle Paul mentions abandonment by an unbeliever as another reason for divorce. It's also a clear violation of that marriage covenant. So these two reasons stand as the only reasons for lawful divorce. And they are meant to protect that innocent, injured party. As Jim Neuheiser, professor at RTS in Charlotte, said, every divorce involves a sinful violation of God's design for marriage, but not every divorced person is responsible for the divorce. And so there's mercy. Now you can see that this gets very complex very quickly. If a husband 
or just to give some examples of a husband physically abuses his wife routinely and is addicted to pornography and refuses to repent from it, has he, in effect, abandoned his wife and has he committed adultery? What about the husband that refuses to work but believes he was put on earth to play video games in the basement and sends his wife out to work every day and she is bringing home the bacon, which is his responsibility, and then he spends every dime wastefully that she brings home? Is that a a form of abandonment? We could present more scenarios and more questions than there are people in this room and the the room across the hall. And they're not easy questions to answer. For me personally, I'm just one elder among many, but I believe there is a spirit to the law here that we need to recognize. God provides mercy for the injured and the innocent party when the covenant has been broken to such a degree. And so we want to be careful. We don't want to open up the Pandora's box here, but I personally believe something like abuse can be a form of abandonment. Sexually abusing a mire in the home can be a form of adultery. And these are some of the hardest pastoral cases that we have to wrestle through. And there's a reason that all of these come in order here in Matthew. Just a couple of weeks ago, we looked at church discipline, and it is one of the great blessings, I think, that I don't have to make these decisions myself. We get a bunch of elders together in a room who are praying and looking at the Scriptures and collecting their wisdom by the Spirit together and make these decisions together. Because they are not easy. What about if you have unlawfully divorced? Well, it's a sin. It's a grievous sin. But it's not the unforgivable sin. Just as adultery is not the unforgivable sin, so divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Christ died upon that cross and His blood was shed. It wasn't just for some contingent of types of sinners. It was for all types of sinners. So though you may be unlawfully divorced, you can find yourself under the blood of Christ and you can have peace there. Now, if your spouse is not remarried and you're not remarried, then you may need to go seek that spouse. And seek to be, see if you can be reconciled. But if not, there is rest under the blood of Christ. What about remarriage? What Jesus says here that except for sexual immorality, the one who marries another commits adultery. You can add 1 Corinthians 7 and the abandonment here as well. The injured party is free to remarry. There's intended mercy here. Some of you in these two rooms may be remarried after a divorce that was your own fault, or maybe it was for unbiblical grounds that you were divorced, and so you're married now in a way that Jesus says shouldn't have happened. Did you sin in remarrying? The answer is yes. Does that mean that you're to end this marriage? The answer is absolutely no. 
Are you continuing in sin by remaining married or having sexual relations with your new spouse? No. It would be further sin to divorce a spouse or to keep the marriage bed from them. Can God turn what was wrong for good? Yes. Can you enjoy your marriage now? Absolutely, you must. Can you at the same time wish you'd honor God more faithfully before? Yes. Do you have an opportunity to honor Him now? Oh, boy, do you. As you seek to love your spouse now, as a Christian brother or sister, as a child of God, you seek to love them as your husband or wife to the best of your possible ability. And you rest under the blood of Christ. We seek to value what Jesus values. What God has given mercy for, let not man dismiss. Sixth, what God has given for the sake of the kingdom, let not man neglect. God has given for the sake of the kingdom, let not man neglect. The disciples, they hear all of this and they think it's better not to marry. Sounds pretty difficult, Jesus. And Jesus responds with saying, well, not everyone can receive that saying. It's only for those who have the gift that marriage should be ruled out. You'll notice that Jesus doesn't deny the hardness of marriage here. I find that incredibly encouraging. Uh, I was telling the elders this weekend, we were together this weekend for our retreat. Uh, they prayed for every single one of you as members by name, and all of you regular attendees by name. Uh, but while we were together this weekend, I was telling them, I remember when my grandfather and grandmother were celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary, and uh, at the party, I remember my grandfather locking eyes with me and saying at this 50th wedding anniversary, he said, Jason, I said, yes, Grandpa. He said, the first 50 are the hardest. <laughs> Great encouragement, Grandpa. That's helpful. It's not easy. Jesus gives three categories of eunuchs here. I was born that way with some kind of physical defect. Some who have been required by other people to become eunuchs. That was a common case in the ancient Near World where especially a man would be castrated who would then be put in charge of a house and so he could be trusted with all the women servants in the house or he might be the master of the harem and so be castrated so he could be trusted with the harem. The third category are those who have taken it upon themselves by the gift of God for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. Jesus took it upon himself, Paul will take it upon himself, and many will follow in the history of the church and take it upon themselves. You'll notice that Jesus doesn't say that celibacy is a holier calling, neither does Paul in 1 Corinthians but he does point out that such a calling allows one to be used in special ways for the sake of the kingdom. It frees a person up from worldly cares and frees them up to do a kind of ministry for the sake of the kingdom that most of us cannot enjoy and that we cannot do. And my fear is, especially in the evangelical church today, that we dismiss that this can be a gift. 
We want to value what Jesus values. And he says it's a gift. One that can be received. Christ values those who are able to receive this and says let them receive it. If we're going to value what Christ values, then we value the single individual in our midst living their life for the sake of the kingdom in a way that many of us can't. What God has given for the sake of the kingdom, let not man neglect. We need marriages in the church committed to Christ's kingdom, and we need singles in the church committed to Christ's kingdom. We value what Christ values. Finally, what God welcomes, let not man hinder. God welcomes, let not man hinder, and that is children. If we are going to value what Christ values, we have to value children. And you don't need me to tell you that this is countercultural today. The fact that we would, as a society, take forceps and crush the head of a child in a womb or that we would take a knife and we would lacerate the spinal cord of a child in the womb is all you need to know. We don't value children. It is horrific. You can't uphold abortion and value as Christ values. But we can discuss, I think, a more common error in the church remember when I was a kid and watching my dad and his siblings when they would gather together and they were in the kitchen there together and they would play board games and they'd play card games together and it always seemed like that's where the real fun was happening and I remember hovering on the outside of the kitchen and, and they would often say to me, Jason, go, go play with the other kids. This is for the adults. It wasn't that they were being rudely dismissive, but yet I didn't quite belong. I could watch and even laugh from a distance, but not quite join in. And I'm concerned that this is too often the reality with our covenant children in our own churches, that we echo this kind of scene. We bring them close, but not quite close enough. We teach them to pray and encourage them to sing, and we require their attendance in Sunday school, but we communicate that they don't, they don't quite belong. The blessings of Christ are not, they're not just quite for them yet. You have to get to a little older age, and then the blessings of Christ are theirs. Notice, though, that when these people are bringing the children to Jesus, that this is not true for Jesus. Mark in his gospel will say that Jesus is indignant. He's angry. One of the few times in the Scriptures you will find Jesus angry like this. He's angry because they're hindering children from coming to Him. For Christ, children are just as important to Him as adults. For Christ, children are just as much welcome as, at His feet as adults. He says, do not hinder them. And so they bring them forward. And what does he do? He lays his hands upon them. He prays for them. He blesses them. The blessings of God are for our children. And so we keep bringing them into the way of God's grace. 
We dare not hinder their path. I love on a Sunday morning that in this room there will be some crying and there will be fidgeting kids and there will be little rustlings of papers and there will be noise here and there. Now, if there's too much crying, child needs to be taken out, but a little crying's needed. The church isn't crying, it's dying. We need it. We want to welcome children in our midst because Christ welcomes children in His midst. We value what Christ values. As Christians, all of this, all of this is countercultural right now. Every single one of these things is countercultural. People will accuse us and they will say, well, you harp on these things, you are cultural warriors. No, we're not seeking to be cultural warriors. I so say, you just want to get back to the 1950s, some idolized age. No, we don't want to go back to the 1950s. I so say, you look back to some old dead letter. The times have surpassed that. We say, no, it's not a dead letter. And these things are relevant for the present. We're not seeking to be mean-spirited by upholding these things. The truthfulness of God's Word, binary gender, marriages between one man and one woman, the importance of marriage, the limiting of divorce, singleness rightly considered, children being important. We hold these things, and they're important to us because they're important to our Lord. We value these things because our Lord values these things. What He values, He values for our good. He's our Creator. And He knows what is for our good. He knows what is best. And so you and I, though we may have to swim against the tide of this culture, though it may mean that our children being taught this are ostracized, though it may mean that it costs you in the workplace, we have to stand for these things. Courage in speaking about these things. We have to hold to these things. We have to value these things because our Christ values these things. We want to do so compassionately. People are struggling in the church with every single one of these subjects. We want to do so compassionately because our culture is rife with struggling with this. And people are confused. But we want to do so with truth because that is love. So we stand upon these things. We value them because our Christ values them. Let's pray. Our Father, we do exalt You this morning. We thank You that You are a God of such kindness that You reveal Your truth to us. 
And we're thankful that that truth is always rooted in your goodness and is always aimed at our goodness. I pray, Father, this morning, this afternoon, I guess now, wherever there is wrestling in this room, wherever there is struggle, I pray, Lord, that you would attend with your truth and with the balm of your mercy. And that we would be a people that stand upon that truth and are merciful to those around us, according to truth. We pray this all in the strong name of that King of kings and Lord of lords, our great Savior, the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus. Amen.